Yeah, so how how are you doing, man? Uh, not too bad. Uh, it's it's it was grossed out earlier. Now it's not grossed out. So I'm uh, I'm enjoying the nice weather and yeah, just kicking back. And uh, I'm on hiatus from writing for a while. Um, hmm. So I've just been sort of enjoying life. What about yourself? Yeah, yeah. It's good to see the sunshine finally. It's been a gloomy June so far. I don't think I've ever seen this before. This much rainfall and this much cloudiness in the month of June, but hopefully things change up soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, I fully expect it to be like last year where effectively it was gloomy and then it was extremely hot and a bunch of people died from how hot it got. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, no, I remember for sure. So is your your hiatus related to your recent Orthodox Christian retreat? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, more or less. Um, it's very difficult to effectively, um, report on issues, let alone opine on issues that are political, um, in the current headspace I'm in. So I felt that it was sort Mm. of, uh, to not only to the detriment of my own sort of ability to report and write, but to the detriment of, of the readers, if I'm not able to effectively articulate what's going on i'll have the odd sort of thing here or there i've only done like in the past two months i've only done a couple podcasts i did another podcast with um with pierre polyev yesterday um mm. so i I've, I've done a few things that i sort of can't you know i feel is wrong to say no to almost mm. um and i'm just sort of transitioning a little bit into a different space um that is, I would say, less partisan um, mm. and more sort of symbolic and, and cultural. Mm. Yeah, well, in, in many ways, our trajectories align perfectly <laughs> with the kind of headspace I've been in for the past uh, few months, as I've uh, in many ways taken a step back from politics and for a while taking a step back from Twitter as well. And uh, thankfully, I, I've been doing some really powerful psychedelic therapy, but m- mostly in between those uh, two or three sessions I've done, a lot of counseling, a lot of meditation, a lot of spiritual reading, um, and that's forced me to reevaluate why I'm doing what I'm doing and what the motivation of it is, and if it's healthy or not, and uh, that whole... Uh, introspective process has taken me a bit back from politics and away from the culture wars and more into the the conflicts and the turmoil within, which I feel like most people don't really acknowledge or spend a lot of time looking at. And they're too busy kind of externalizing or projecting their own issues into the world. And so they, they become obsessed with politics and media so I, I'm curious to hear um, how this journey started for you. And before I do that, for people who, who don't know you, you're a journalist at The Post Millennial, and you've done some great work there. I've read some of your articles, and you've interviewed Jordan Peterson a couple of times. And you, you mentioned you've interviewed Pierre Polyev twice now. And I think you've uh, interviewed Aaron O'Toole back when he was uh, the leader of the Conservative Party. And you've interviewed a lot of other high-profile people too. So you've, you've done a lot of great work writing for the, the Post-Millennial. And you have a pretty solid journalistic profile. So what 
how did your spiritual journey kind of start over the past few months as you got into Orthodox Christianity? Yeah, well, I appreciate that, uh, Rav. Um, you know, I've I've always been I've always been Orthodox. You know, becoming from a Greek family, um, we're Greek or- Orthodox. So I was born into it, but you know, for many people that are born into religions, and by born in, I mean raised in it, um, what you often find is that the the spirituality you feel as a child that you, that you've never known to be without is very different from the spirituality of an adult that has sort of treaded through different waters and experienced different things and really sort of tested their own faith and spirituality and played around with it. So, you know, my, my position as a 25 year old was, was always, you know, oh, I'm Greek Orthodox and this is what I believe in and, and I'm Christian and so on and so forth. However, you know, there've been a number of things happened to me that sort of force your hand to acknowledge the world in a spiritual sense um, more aggressively. Um, in February, um, I abruptly lost my father uh, to, to a heart attack. And that experience um, completely changed my life, obviously, um, especially given how close we were, but particularly given the circumstances of it and how I was there and had to deal with it. Um, so that I would say my spirituality that, that I've sort of encountered now was born out of a necessity that came as a result of trauma. Um, I, I experienced really terrible um, effects throughout March and April um, that were not only traumatic mentally, but I actually, and I haven't really talked about this publicly yet, but I actually suffered um, a a heart issue as a result that that apparently this happens sometimes with people where if a loved one passes away, you can actually develop um, some kind of damage to your own heart. And uh, that it's called broken heart syndrome. So apparently that's, that's also what I got. So all of a sudden, you know, my world was really turned upside down in February, March, and April. And I sort of knew that I had to do something radically mm. different. And, and and by the way, when you say you had this heart issue, was there some kind of pain, like physical pain associated with that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. There's absolutely, too. there was chest pain. There's, you know, your typical symptoms, like what, what, what first, what first really indicated it to me was the fact that um, my resting heart rate was something like 140, which is just insanely high. Um, and so my heart was was just struggling to, to work properly. So there was chest pains. Um, you know, there's a series of symptoms and I went to the doctor and, and they found that this is what's going on. So, you know, encountering that, the symbolism isn't really lost that, you know, I, I abruptly lost my father to a heart related issue. And now I was having a heart related issue and I thought, Oh God, like, I'm, and what, I'm, what was it? What was the diagnosis for you? The, uh, for, for mine, it was, um, what's it called? I'm going to look it up. It, like, it's the, it the, anxiety the, related. Well, this, so it's stress induced damage on the heart. There's a certain term for it. Um, I mean, broken heart syndrome is the is the layman's term, but there's a specific um, mm. 
there's a specific. It's uh, not myocarditis, I assume. It's not heart inflammation. No, right? no, no, no. It's okay. tackle tubo, tackle tubo cardiomyopathy. Um, that's, mm, that's which, which is usually a symptom of myocarditis. That's it's one of them, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah, it it doesn't have to be, but it, but it's yeah. one of them. And, and interesting, you know, I um, so they did a bunch of you do a bunch of tests and stuff like that. But you know, in the midst of all of this, I was and, working like crazy. Hmm. Um, I I I'm on hiatus now, but funnily enough, I wasn't on hi- hiatus immediately after. I just threw myself into work. To, to such a degree where I realized that I'm basically working to distract myself. Um, and my mm-hmm. life basically was a series of distractions from all sorts of existential questions that I have, right? Mm-hmm. I was basically working all day, consuming, you know, meaningless political garbage all day. And at night, I would just, you know, turn some something stupid on and just fall asleep to it. So I was I began noticing myself becoming distant to my girlfriend um, and distant to those around me, in addition to the heart issue and the trauma. So that's why in April, I made the decision to basically take a leave and um, drive down to Vashon Island, Washington and live with uh, with orthodox monks for a week um and that experience was absolutely life-changing um wow it's, it's everything i hoped it would be and where, where did you say sorry so it's called vashon island um, where is that it's right off the coast of seattle hmm. and it's a it's a small island and on that island there's a monastery um, the monastery has five monks, one of whom is the abbot. His name is Abbot Trifon. And Abbot Trifon in the Orthodox world and beyond has built a bit of a profile for himself. If you look him up, particularly on Facebook, he has something like 60 or 70,000 followers now. Um, so he's he's sort of gone down this, um, he's like a massive Jordan Peterson fan. Like he he does these videos and these long blogs about spirituality and this was a guy who was actually the leader of the Socialist Party of America in the 60s. He was a hardcore <laughs> atheist hippie. He was a psychologist, a PhD in, in cognitive uh, psychology. And then eventually he converted to Buddhism and then from there to orthodoxy. And now he's an abbot oh, really? um, of this monastery. So, so How long was I, he in Buddhism? I, Do you know? I think very briefly, very briefly. He, he mentioned that very briefly. But that's that's the case with a lot of these guys. Like Seraphim Rose um, is a very prolific Orthodox writer. And he grew up, he's, he's one of these guys that will probably be canonized as a saint. But he grew up Protestant um, in, in, in California in the 60s, um, became an atheist, became a Buddhist, and then became an Orthodox monk. So it seems to be part and parcel for a lot of these guys. But the interesting thing with this Abbot Trifon is that he was also a psychologist. So in addition to going on this spiritual pilgrimage, I felt that he would, he and, and those around him would be especially equipped to help me overcome uh, what I needed to overcome. So it was, uh, it was a total detachment from everything. The monastery is, is in the middle of nowhere. Um, 
in this forested area. It's something like 15 acres that they own. And you get there and you, you turn everything off. You put all the electronics away and you, you live as they live. Mm. Okay, yeah. So, so can we dive into the experience of what it was like? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't know if you want to go day by day. I'm very curious about what it was like, what the regimen was, everything from like if there was a specific time you had to sleep and wake up. And was it, yeah. I'm sure there was, an, there was an order of things that you had to do. Extreme meditation, walking. Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in knowing that. So feel free to structure um, the explanation however you want. Maybe to start with day one, I guess. Yeah, day one. Well, I got there later later in the day on a Thursday. So we sort of just went straight to bed. But, uh, and I actually. And, and, went, and also, by the, before you go on, did this cost something significant? Or well, just, was it donation based? Just, just the gas to go down there. To stay there, it's for free. Um, really? They, yeah, it's completely for free. Uh, they're happy to have, it's men only. Um, okay. They're happy to have visitors. Obviously, we donated money. Um, I think it's sort of expected you do, but it's not, it's not a stipulation, right? Because they see it as this is supposed to be a hospital for your soul. We can't ask for money, right? Mm. But they're all donation based. And it's actually kind of interesting. They've built a real business for themselves because they make, they make their own coffee that they sell online and they, they sustain themselves from that. They make their own soap. Um, they, they, mm. you know, they have their own bookstore, like they really sort of are completely self-sufficient and obviously, you know, 15 acres, they have farms and animals and chickens. And so they're, they're completely self-sustained. Um, so when getting there. And, and, was, and also did, did they provide food by the way? Yes. It was room and board food completely provided for. Absolutely. Mm. Okay. And how, and how was that too? So I'm just. This is kind of a minor point, but I, but I, I've heard in Buddhist meditation retreats, the food tends to be very bare bones, like rice, lentils, water, maybe like an apple or a banana, but but pretty stripped down. Was it like that? Yeah, it, it was. It was very basic. However, one of the days, um, it was almost like a party because I chose an interesting time. Right, Orthodox, we fast for forty days before Easter. Um, like no so food for 40 was, days no no um no any sort of meat just 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 vegetables basically and uh and carbohydrates right and carbohydrates yeah yeah okay yeah so it's it's fasting in orthodoxy is primarily done to basically weaken yourself intentionally so we sort of view meat as something that makes you aggressive and power hungry and you know, denying yourself that sort of humbles you. So they, they had a long, and they, for monks, again, there's layers to it. For the layman, they'll have carbohydrates and greens. For monks, it's far more extreme, where they'll cut it down to just like, you know, the most bare, bare minimum, like what you said about Buddhist monks. So this was after that. So of course, after Easter, it's like a, celebra a celebration time, right? So there was one day in particular where they had um, where they had this sort of cake that they gave out. But for the most part, it was eggs that they had from their chickens in the garden. It was it was pieces of bread that they baked. Um, and that was it, um, you know, and a lot of coffee because they make coffee there. Uh, so they're all about they're all about their coffee. Um, 
so it was very bare bones but before you even get to breakfast i mean we we they give you a really nice cabin to sleep in um mm. and i mean really nice i'm not i don't mean it has like air conditioning or whatever i mean it's really nice in the sense that it's it's wholesome um mm. and you are expected to wake up at around four or five o'clock in the morning and at around five o'clock um they have uh, a service uh, in the church so the bells will ring and when the bells ring you you know that's the 10 minute warning and then there'll be another instrument that's made out of wood that they begin banging and then you are expected to be in church so you know you're, you're that was already a, a lot of the first day was a lesson in just how unbelievably pathetic i was in terms of how how comfortable i am in my like western you know urban generation z life we're having to get up that early and all oh, here we go and you don't eat anything before before the service you're not supposed to so i i dragged myself down there and, and we go into the church and the church is unbelievably gorgeous and it's filled with incense so it's just very thick smoke um if you're someone who can't handle the scent it, it might be a little overwhelming but i i tend to enjoy it and orthodoxy if you look go in most cities there'll be pews in the church but in this case there wasn't so there are no pews you the church is standing only you're expected to stand in one spot and you're expected to do that for a couple hours so we stood in that you know i had to stand in this one particular spot and i i went through the service which is primarily chanting if you know orthodox services it's it's a it's old hymns that are essentially born out of the fact that the early bible was not written it was sung so because they couldn't write so it's all chants and it's chants that are in ancient greek in aramaic in Russian, in English, even a little Latin. They, they sort of do it all. And that experience uh, was, was, again, really daunting to, to go through that and to see how the process worked. While I was there, there was another young guy, um, and his name was Basil. And that was his, his orthodox name. He was, a, he was an American guy from Louisiana. And he had that week, in fact, uh, decided to become a monk. So he was actually living there with them full time. He was a you know, 20, 26 year old guy. Um, and for you know, whatever personal reasons, he had decided that this was going to be his life, basically. So he was an interesting sort of all the branch into this. And, and he showed the process of how everything works, how you walk, you know, you walk up to an icon to kiss it. You do your cross, you touch the floor, you kiss the icon. You're supposed to do that three times for every icon. It's all very, very, very regimented. Every single thing is incredibly specific and every single thing has its meaning and purpose. So, you know, those first two hours were fascinating to me. Not all completely unfamiliar, having grown up in the church, but it was it was a challenge like i won't lie it was a challenge to to be completely without technology um and to stand in one spot for two hours your mind 
I shouldn't say your mind. My mind was plagued by all sorts of things. Forget about the trauma, but just the noise that what you quickly realize in meditation, you probably have seen this, Rav, where we're so plugged into technology all the time that our brain is almost overactive. And when you're not plugged into it, there's sort of this noise that wants to produce something in your head. Um, I'm, I'm not very used to having nothing happening in my head. And that that was sort of scary and fascinating at the same time. But this was just the first service. After the first service is done, you you go into the what they call the trapeza. The trapeza is where the kitchen is. You sit, you have you have breakfast. Even that is regimented. You do a special prayer beforehand. When the abbot sits, you all sit. You do not talk. You have breakfast. When the abbot is done, he rings a bell, and, and that's when breakfast is over, basically. And from there, you basically have the day to do what you want. You know, they they give you work to do. Like that that is the idea that often when in orthodoxy, when you do these pilgrimages, you're not necessarily going for a vacation. You're sort of going to be and act like a novice monk, that you are part of it. So they, they you know, they give you things to do but they don't want to force you because they also understand that you're there for wisdom. So a lot of my time was spent reading and um, there's, there's a couple really good Orthodox books. One is the, the ethics of beauty, um, which talks about symbolism. And another one that's more Eastern that you might be interested in is Christ, the, the Christ, the eternal Tao. And it's uh, specifically related to, uh, Taoism and Christ. And, uh, and that one's also very fascinating. So I, you spend the day doing that. And then at about five o'clock PM, you do the service all over again for another two hours. Then you have dinner and then that's that for the day. And then you do the same thing the next day. Um, so, you know, the first day was absolutely a challenge. Uh, it was absolutely a challenge. Like, it, it, you know, I'm not saying that to, uh, in the sense that it's something I didn't enjoy, but it, but rather I'm not used to being unplugged to that degree. And what I found was that over time, as the days lingered on, that that struggle and that discipline to just stand there for hours, to to follow all the specific regiments, to it felt almost militaristic. Um, and of course I brought that up and, and their perception is that it is militaristic in the sense that we are, they see the world as a spiritual war. One of the monks had said that we are fighting a spiritual war, except only a few of us care to admit that the war is happening. The war is going to happen either way. And that war is within each and each one of us, right? That is that is what we believe. Orthodoxy believes that effectively God became man so that man could become God. That is sort of what our sect strives to believe. That that there are there are forces at play that are preventing you from achieving um, from achieving what you're supposed to achieve. And you said man is supposed to become God, as in yeah. Like like everybody, or just referring to 
um, the specific mission of Jesus? Jesus was effectively the blueprint for what we're supposed to do. So the idea is that God came down to become man. Hmm. So, so that man may become God so that man may have the opportunity hmm. to become God. Become. Um, uh, yes. That, that is, it's an Orthodox. Um, yeah. That is an Orthodox concept. So interesting right? to me. Not, because that is not you, Protestant or evangelical no, in any way. No, no. No, they they no, they, we, they would abhor abhor that idea that you said. <laughs> they do they do abhor that idea, right? That Yikes. that is that is the Christianity is is um it is a spectrum. Like if you look at at Protestantism, it, it's primarily salvific, um, and it has sola scriptura. If you look at Catholicism, Catholicism is also salvific, um, in the sense that you know, you are saved, that you are, you are cleansed, that you have this original sin that needs to be cleansed. Um, in orthodoxy, we don't believe in original sin. Um, we, we, and we don't, we're not really necessarily salvific in the sense that our lives are this thing where we're, we're just supposed to be forgiven for what we've done. And then we get to go to heaven. It's more so, um, a pathway to what we call theosis. So theosis is the process of becoming one with God. Um, and that is, that, that sort of is the primary, the primary objective of an Orthodox Christian is to become like God, to, to live in a way that is not in line with human nature because human nature is, is sort of broken. So to do things, to unlock capabilities beyond our sort of petty human nature. Mm. That, yeah, that's so interesting. And so when you say, so maybe we should be more precise here. So become God or become like God or become one with God, like unify with God. Like, is there still a separation between God and man when you reach that ultimate transcendent state or is it more of like a oneness idea? It's a become oneness. God. Really? It's it's a it's a oneness idea, right? The, the the idea is that God breathed into us, that God breathed into humans, and the 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 whole thing with theosis, it's not that you become a god that now you're you're a god that is sitting next to God. That's not right. that's not necessarily what what it's saying. It's not saying that you are a deity now, but rather um, it, it goes back to this. So the the term sin, this is again a division between the West and the East. In the West, you think of sin, you think of, you know, dirty or wrong or however you want to define it in the cultural zeitgeist. But sin comes from um, an ancient Greek word, ancient Greek word called amartia. And amartia is an archery term. So an archery term, amartia, specifically means to miss the mark. It means to, 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 launch an arrow and miss the bullseye that's all and that is what sin is sin is to miss the mark there are forces at play that make you miss the mark but that is what's happening so theosis is the process in which you don't miss the mark that you are perfectly in line with the ultimate good and that means being part of god so it's that oneness um now to get to that 
like orthodoxy is also very ritualistic mm. which is again well, well, very, also yeah. also before we, before we get to the the ritual which i'm really interested in this this oneness idea so is it like finding an identity with god like experiencing god and becoming one with it so that you are one rather than a division between man and god so you it's you become indistinguishable from god like god fills your heart and there's no yes. longer a division between self and god yes exactly really basically that's, wow that that that's it's an eastern concept obviously um but when you look at our concept of hell it, it makes even more sense because again hell the, the western concept is hell is this fiery place with brimstone and guys with pitchforks but within our concept is hell is the absence of god it is the absence of light it is the absence of it it is the furthest away you can be from it so in that sense heaven is is that oneness and theosis specifically is is absolutely that being one with god that god became man Mm. and and that you know god became man so that man could become god that is that is the objective for every Mm. orthodox christian yeah that that what you what you just outlined there that is at the heart of hinduism exactly what you just said i mean of course all differences aside that idea is fundamental to the hindu belief system which is not about um, dividing man between God. Um, it's ultimately um, you, you seek identity within God um, and you become indistinguishable from it. And, 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 and maybe, the, maybe where one key difference may lie is that in Hinduism, God manifests itself within everybody, regardless of belief. So, so, so you and I both have God, your neighbor, is filled with the spirit of God. But, but of course, most people don't actually realize that most people are stuck in their ego minds and they're, uh, and they're chasing after all these different materialistic and sexual and economic things. And they're not able to actually see their true Brahmin nature. And Brahmin just basically means God. Um, is that, uh, does that align with orthodoxy at all? Or is it more like you have to believe this way and then, you can eventually seek identity with God. Well, we believe that God is in everyone, right? There's no human being that doesn't have sort of a piece of God in them. Um, again, I know there's certain divisions there with certain churches that believe basically that if you don't accept Jesus Christ, you just have nothing. There's no God in you or anything like that. That's not that's not, mm. not our belief. It, it, we liken it more so to a candle um and obviously our our perception is that that candle shines brightly and is vibrant um the closer you are to god consciously right so it would be wrong to presuppose that you know an individual who doesn't know christ is damned um you know we we sort of rank it in a different way where we often talk about in orthodoxy that the priest is the most, uh, the priest has the worst position out of everyone because those who are most cognizant of God have a greater responsibility to hit that mark. Wow. If that makes sense, right? That, that those, there's that, a higher that standard. Those who, there's a higher standard, which makes sense, right? That if you're, 
mm-hmm. if you're a priest, for example, and, and you're, you know, you're taking bribes or you're doing something that you consciously know is unethical and not in line with God, you are sort of doubly at fault because you are voluntarily doing something that you know is wrong. Um, so that matters. It, it absolutely does matter. And, and the, that's, that's where it's interesting with the Eastern aspect of orthodoxy. And, and like, I definitely, everything you're saying, like we, we hear that all the time with, with a lot of Hindu, Hindus, um, a lot of Buddhists, especially yeah. where, you know, our church is, is, I don't know if this is the official position, but we're, we're Trinitarian, right? We believe in the father, the son, and the Holy spirit. And our perception is almost that Buddhism, for example, may not necessarily have the father-son aspect, but it has the Holy Spirit that is evident. The Holy Spirit being that, that breath of life, that, that feeling that you feel when you are completely at ease and at peace. Um, mm. that, that is the echo of God. It is the echo of his voice um, mm. tra- transcending everywhere. So that's definitely there, which is why there's so much literature, um, like Christ the Eternal Tao. There's so much literature that's Eastern. And there's so many, you know, there's converts that go both ways, right? A lot of, I know some Orthodox Christians that became Buddhists. I know Buddhists who become Orthodox Christian. In many ways, like I, I feel, if I wasn't Orthodox, I'd probably be like a Buddhist or something like that. Just in terms of my what I feel closer to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of differences. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So as far as the, the monastery goes, as the days went on, I, I finally got to really inundate myself with Abbot Trifon, who's sort of, again, this really prominent legendary figure in orthodoxy. And he's just this amazing personality. Um, super charismatic, super at ease, super at calm. And above all that, you know, I went there to escape politics. And and again, he was such an eccentric guy. All he wanted to do was talk about politics because something really terrible happened to him, which was that he was the the sheriff for the island uh, for the past 20 years. And his refusal to be vaccinated meant that the state stripped him of his title as, you know, the sheriff and caretaker of the island. And that really, um, he was quite, he was quite bothered by that, as were all the monks, because none of them were vaccinated. And so they were all very much, um, you know, concerned for the world, despite the fact that they were exiles from it right being a monk is voluntarily exiling yourself um not being part of the world and funnily enough again you think they don't have access to technology but occasionally they do and there's this one monk named father martin um who i guess had actually heard of me before had heard of one of my podcasts and knew my my cancellation story and he came up to me when I was looking, I was in the church and looking at the cross, he came up to me and he patted me on the back and he said, um, I'm sorry you were canceled. Um, and, but, and he points to Jesus and he says, but nobody could get canceled here. 
you're 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 uncancelable because he got he got canceled we're all canceled like that's you should relish in it basically so i thought that was it was interesting to see their perspectives on what's happening in the culture um especially because they 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 were quite they're actually a very funny group of guys and and we were so close to seattle that all they did half the time when we weren't meditating was just like saying how terrible Seattle was and how decrepit <laughs> it was, which again, was just very, it was very funny from, from my perspective, but you know, as the days went on again, like eventually I had this strange elation where I would stand there. I think it was Sunday. Because, of course, Sunday is a larger feast day. And I got communion, which, you know, is given to you um, from a golden chalice. And, and we believe it's the blood of Christ. And there's bread, and you believe it's the bread of Christ. And standing there, I don't know if it was the incense that got to me. But I just became completely transfixed at some point. All the discomfort of standing there. Um, all the thoughts racing through my head, all of that, just something just clicked the same way, you know, some kind of ink or a cramp hurts you and then it just goes away instantly. And that's how it felt that something just clicked and I just became completely at, at ease. It almost felt as though... Um, it's hard to explain, but it's the only way I can explain it. It felt as though I had like an extra lung in the sense that when I breathed in, it felt like I was breathing in more fully. It felt that I was feeling things more fully, that when I would touch something, I would touch it more fully. Uh, and it feels that the way we are outside of that, such as right now, it's almost like we're a little bit deaf, we're a little bit blind we're a little bit numb to everything um, that we're not fully human. We're not fully experiencing the world. Everything is a little bit muffled. That's how it felt. It felt that, that nothing was muffled anymore. And I felt completely at ease. And those two and a half hours felt like wow. three minutes, it felt like three minutes had gone by. Wow. Um, and that, that experience was absolutely um, mind blowing. And, as a result, this is what I found the most interesting about the monks themselves, is that they're extremely disciplined. This is going to be the rest of their life. They're celibate. They live in, you know, in the wilderness. They do this every day. And what I found is that it's not, being disciplined is not necessarily conducive to sort of this life of intentional suffering. Like I almost thought that this is sort of, I have to intentionally suffer. I have to intentionally make myself uncomfortable, which you do to some degree, but that's not necessarily their case. Their case is more so about contrast in the sense that on, on the Sunday we did, you know, all the feast day and, and all these sort of complicated rituals. And again, orthodoxy is very ritualistic. But then later in the evening, it was what they called guys night, which again made me laugh because it's like it's five men on an island. What, every night is guys night. But guys night is when they go into the holy library 
and they drink scotch and alcohol that they that they've distilled themselves and they just tell stories and laugh and you don't really expect it from you know you think of monks and you think they're just these people that feel nothing but experiencing that with them again was was strangely fascinating because it was such a struggle we all went through this highly disciplined task for a week everything was highly disciplined for a week and as a result of that discipline you sort of enjoy the relaxation a little more you enjoy everything a little bit more everything is put into perspective and you have a certain camaraderie with each other because you experienced it together so you know it was uh it was quite fascinating and i'm still in touch with them now i'm, I'm you know i plan on going back when i can Mm. And by the way, what, what exactly brought up that powerful experience you had at the church service? Was it a particular prayer or a mantra or a specific ritual? Yeah, so, so something we do, um, if you look at, at people who are Orthodox, typically men will have a prayer rope or prayer beads on their, on their left hand, and I do. And what you do is you grab one of the knots and there's a certain we call it the jesus prayer and this is what abba trifon asked me to do um he asked me to say the jesus prayer the jesus prayer is very simple it's lord jesus christ have mercy on me a sinner and then you just say that over and over and over again with every single knot and you do it for hours if need be like you you do it as as a disciplinary thing and you do it standing there and that's what i did and the bells began to ring or the bells began to ring and the um one of the abbots their singing voice was just so fantastic and they were they were chanting christ has risen from the dead in this very just magnificent um, magnificent chorus all while I was just engulfed in this smoke and, and in particular what it was while I was doing all that, I saw just the sunlight beaming through the church windows and bouncing off the smoke. And I just became transfixed with that smoke twirling around. And it was in that moment that I began to feel um, what I felt. I, I don't know if it was one of those things specifically. I don't know if it was even something in that room or maybe it was a result of the five days that led up to it mm. um you know it, it's it's they call it detox right like yeah. I, I got there and they say oh you're here to detox well it's detox from what is it the dopamine from our phone is it the noise of the city is it is it the nonsense that we pay attention to what is it specifically mm. and maybe it's nothing specific maybe it's all of it Mm. And this uh, prayer uh, exercise you were doing, so your your account. So every time you say the prayer, you're you're holding one of the beads. Yeah, uh, you move on to the next bead. Mm, yeah, yeah, and that's the, that's called the rosary, right? Yeah, in Catholicism they call it the rosary. Um, uh, in our in our we call it something we call kubuskini, but um, mm. but yeah, it's similar. It's similar to that where mm. again it's 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 this discipline thing it's a way of keeping track of things but 
you do that yeah. to effectively get to a place where you're praying all the time and that's how they are mm. their 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 lips never really stop moving they're praying all the time right that to them that is theosis is you are in a permanent state of prayer it's not something you just do on the weekend it's not something you just do when something good has happened or when something bad has happened it's it mm. is your entire being is praying it is doing the ritual um mm. and that that is you know a lot of it is is probably unattainable to us because we've chosen to live you know we've chosen to live in the city and live in the world and, and our right. perception is that effectively if you want to achieve true theosis you do have to walk the walk and basically live as they do um and most of us won't but it's not it's not it's not a one for one there are elements to it that can be taken and you know even if you have five percent of it in your life it could be something that changes the trajectory for you so mm. and it certainly has since then i mean it, you know it certainly has coming back i see mm. um but, i see a lot before before it. yeah before we get to coming back like that i should also just quickly say the the counting the beads and reciting a prayer that's that's a big part of a Hindu tradition as well. Um, usually you're wearing a, a big necklace with like a hundred beads on it and yeah. you're holding each bead and you're chanting the word Om. That's usually a, a pretty basic uh, fundamental one that everybody's supposed to do. There are other mantras as well, but you're counting Om, Om, Om. And it's, it's, and, and I don't know if, um, if you've looked into the, just the, the sound experience of it, of just not, not necessarily even what the words mean, but the, the energy that the words carry. I don't know if that's a, a part of that prayer, but that's a big part of these Hindu mantras is, is, you know, Om uh, in the Hindu tradition, that's the sound that created the universe, that that's the conceptual idea. But the idea is not to fixate on the idea. It's to just feel that sound, which Om, it's a full sound you make from the back of your tongue to the tip of your lips and so it's a full sound you're making and just focus on that sound energy and feel it through your body don't add any meaning to it um just feel that sound and is that, is that similar at all to um the prayer yeah it, it's it's especially similar in the sense that after you say it long enough and obviously if you have a, a prayer rope um or even a necklace because we do those too after a while to say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. It, it doesn't even feel like a sentence anymore. It feels like, it, it's it's like that with any word you say, right? Where if you say a word long enough, it sort of loses its meaning. It just becomes this, this, right. this noise almost. And, and yeah. that I found, I found it did that. And then I also found that it cleared my head because if I'm just sitting there, you know, and I'm not sitting there, I'm standing there. But if I was sitting and whenever I have sat in churches, I sort of sit there and spread my legs open and I think like, oh, what am I going to watch on Netflix tonight? And, you know, I have different things going through my head. Standing there, it, it, you're not as able, you're not able to do that as much. And then saying something over and over again sort of makes your brain transfix on that one thing. And suddenly you're not thinking about all these things that are toxic and destructive. Um, you're just thinking about that one thing. Uh, so I, I don't think it's, 
I don't think it's a coincidence that all these cultures and all these religions across the world just happen to have this mm. this thing. Like clearly, there is a some kind of universal truth that yes. obviously we we don't understand it. Maybe we never will understand it, but there has to be something to that in the sense that I know even Islam has that. Yeah. So yeah. you know what is that? Right. Like that. That is sort of what I'm becoming more transfixed by is I'm I care less about um, what Biden's approval ratings are <laughs> and I care more about why are we all so if we're all just apes why are we so transfixed on the meaning behind everything mm. what is what what is you know this isn't I feel like something's off. Like I, I, I just feel as though what is the evolutionary utility to being existential basically? And, and I, I feel like that, that question, the journey to answering that question is a far greater journey to, to take and to embark on versus the surface level, you know, politicking and obviously there's still going to be that i don't want yeah. to put myself in a corner and say i'm never gonna make fun of aoc ever again i absolutely will yeah <laughs> but uh but you get my point that there's something yeah. um there's something more to it and that's really what what you know attracted me to you know jordan peterson from the get-go a lot of people became really transfixed on peterson because of bill c-16 which absolutely was this big deal. But I, I more so enjoyed the Bible lectures mm. and the, and the symbolic discussions and same here. You know, I, I, same yeah, here. exactly. It was less like political. I, it was more so the, the spiritual and the, the psychology side of him that interested me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I, you know, I wanted to hear him talk about Pinocchio more than I wanted to hear him talk about Justin Trudeau. And, and, <laughs> you know, even in my, um, they got mad at me. The editors got mad at me because in my interview with him, you know, I had, I had notes and everything. They gave me notes saying, you got to ask them about this political thing and Justin Trudeau and this <laughs> and that. And then my interview yeah. with him was like two hours of us talking about spirituality and icons <laughs> and what does this icon mean with Jesus on it? Like we just That's got awesome. so great, so granular into the esoteric nature of like spirituality that they were like, you know, what the hell is this shit? So it's, uh, but I enjoyed it, right? That's and it's the same with Jonathan Pajot. Like I, I, I couldn't recommend him more. He's incredible, um, yeah. and and he's taught Peterson a lot. Like he's sort of Peterson's guy on spirituality. Mm. Um, so that yeah, that's what's yeah, attracted yeah. me most. I, I do want to go back to that prayer because I have a few thoughts about that and a few questions as well. So, um, like you, you were, you said something along the lines of what? Why is that so profound? Right, that's you know fixating on one point, that one prayer and repeating it over and over again, and and I'll maybe first ask you: Have you done mindfulness meditation at all in the like either the Sam Harris way or any just kind of conventional mindfulness meditation practice? Con conventional. I haven't done Sam's, but I've done conventional mindfulness. Yeah, yeah, and so I mean, there there you're just focusing on the breath as one example, or sensations in the body but but breath is usually the, the way they start things off so you're just focusing on your breath 
And so, uh, and of course there's mantra meditation as well, but, but the idea is to develop some concentration and just focus on one thing over and over and over again. It's repetition, right? Regardless of what that thing is, it could be in my case right now, I'm dealing with, with some chronic pain issues and and it's interesting. (laughs) I, I feel like we're, we're deeply aligning on so many different things. And I've been dealing with a lot of chest pain over the past few months, um, really the past few years, and it's not easily explained by any cardiac damage or anything. It's mostly stress-related, trauma-related, not necessarily even from something that's happening right now, but just things from childhood that that, that are also not even that scary or disturbing, but they've just kind of um, stayed with me, and they're, they're kind of plaguing my psyche still. So, um, and in, in that in that case, meditation for people who are struggling with chronic pain, it's just focus on just that pain, just that sensation. You know, what, what is that sensation? Really drill into it and separate your, separate the actual sensation from your feelings about it and your, your hatred for it or your fear of that pain or your anxiety about that pain, separate that from the pain itself. You know, that, that's one variation. But, but just the basic focusing on the breath the the idea is to become so singularly fixated on the breath that you you lose sight of all the uh, neurotic circus that continually plagues your mind all the time about about politics about relationships about religion about this this or that whatever it is whatever thoughts are appearing the but just focusing on the breath for ten minutes ten minutes of mindfulness meditation regardless of what religion you are, where you come from, whatever, like, like just throw all that crap aside and just focus on the breath for 10 minutes. And if you can do that, which most people can't, and to, to some degree, I still can't, but I've at least been doing it for a while that I'm seeing progress and I understand its utility. But what, once you do that for 10 minutes, you're focusing just on the breath or sensations in the body, or you have a mantra, um, you're doing a mantra meditation, you're you know, there's one Kudalini mantra, uh, Om Namo, Guru Dev Namo. You're repeating that every 30 seconds over and over again. Whatever it is, um, w- once you become so transfixed by it, you then see the freedom that's available to you in every moment that you can then practice just by paying attention. You can let go of the inner circus that continually plagues your mind. And like, does that make sense to you at all? And does that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Does that drive with the the prayer? Oh, it absolutely. Yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, the prayer obviously compared to to the plain mindfulness, the prayer has a more spiritual element, but the physicality of it, 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 the physical effects is the same. Like this was a big thing for me when I, or the, when I, or the psychological effects or the psychological, right? Like when I, when I was first dealing with this chronic health issue, um, what I noticed, I think this is especially the case with heart related issues is of course you have chest pain, you get worried, which makes your chest pain worse because you're stressed out. Your heart, 100%. Rate, my, my, my resting heart rate was 140 and then I would freak out. And then it would go up to 160 and I would freak out more. And it was this negative feedback loop that was just becoming worse and worse. And of course, I think I'm sitting there thinking, oh, great, I'm going to die. 
And then really the only way to pull out of it, besides just like medicating yourself, is by sitting there and breathing deeply, breathing into your stomach. And eventually I would notice that number begin to trickle down. And it just works. I'm, I'm still, it's five minutes later. I've, I've done nothing but breathe for five minutes. And my heart is still beating and it's still working. And it's probably working even better now than before. Mm-hmm. So, and also I assume you're doing the, the longer exhales, right? That's what yeah. relaxes that's what relaxes the nervous system, especially if yeah. you're in that fight or flight response. So you, yeah. usually just like a, a five, seven works well, breathe in for five, exhale for seven or, you know, four and six, or if you're really advanced, you know, five and 15 or whatever it is, but that longer exhale is key to really relax the system, right? Oh, a hundred percent. And after you do it long enough, you do get that synergy where you feel more in control of your body. You feel like your body is this sort of, it's not what you said before, like a neurotic, neurotic uh, circus. Like that's my fucking life. Basically I'm, I'm a walking, talking neurotic circus. Like it's just, everything is, is anxiety based. It's just the way I am. And when you do that, when you do the breathing, whether it's the breathing mindfulness exercise or, or the prayer, if we want to be scientific about it, we could say that maybe, because I'm sure there's objective studies that say that, you know, obviously breathing, taking deep breaths has a, a, a positive effect on the body. You could argue that, oh, oh yeah, that's why, that's why a, religions have a wealth it is of, because it's... A wealth of research on that, of course, stress reduction, hormonal regulation, emotional regulation, um, just all, all sorts of research on that. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I'm sure if Sam Harris were here, he would argue that all, that's why all the reason why all religions have that in some form is because it has served some sort of utility, but regardless of, of, of whether that means, again, even if that's true, it doesn't in my head make it less true in the spiritual sense. Like it's still true. You're just coming to the same conclusion from a different angle. And that conclusion is to be at peace. And I feel like this is particularly relevant to our generation where you look at these studies and it's like more and more higher percentage of generations Ed, have severe mental health issues. And we're, we're already well on our way to becoming a generation of pill addicts and people being, mm. you know, just serious, seriously, seriously um, in trouble mentally and, and as a result physically. And I really do think that it's a result of, and obviously I'm completely biased, but I think that a, a, a society that has no spirituality in it um, mm. results in what we see now. And I'm not, I'm not even talking about like all the political stuff or the trans stuff i'm not even talking about that i'm talking more so at the very basic level Mm, of being at peace and being you know not so volatile and not so emotional and and angry or or aimless or aimless lack of purpose yeah lack of purpose uh, you know although yeah although on that point too and and there's there's so a lot i'm gonna talk to you about about orthodox christianity but to just on that point too, I mean, I 
in some ways I feel like Protestant evangelical Christianity isn't able to fully fill that spiritual hole because I mean, I, I've been to many Protestant Christian services and there's one church that I go to with friends and it, it's, it's a great time and I love the sermons and I get a lot out of it, but it doesn't seem to provide a deeply spiritual experience by any stretch. And so that, you know, that's why I'm kind of a more of a Russell brand, Sam Harris type of universalist, um, more so like Russell brand. So I, I, I go to church on Sundays because I love the community and, and I love the sermons and I love learning about Jesus Christ. But I also do a lot of meditation, a lot of Hindu meditation or, or just plain mindfulness meditation, which, which contemplative Hindus and Buddhists, especially secular Buddhists like Sam Harris would argue that, that that's all you need for spirituality. You don't need to add any labels of, of God or Jesus or it can just the breath can be profoundly spiritual, which I think is very interesting. And I'm, and I, I think there's a lot to that idea, but you know, that's just kind of the world that I operate in. But just that Protestant Christianity alone, I feel like can't really provide that deep spiritual experience that Buddhism, Hinduism, and Orthodox Christianity provides. And that, and that's what we've heard a lot. And, and I don't want to. I don't want to besmirch people. I know a lot of really good Protestants. They're very, very nice people. Yeah, so it's um, not about but, people, but, of course. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, it, it, it's Great it's people. about the core aspect of it. Like I, yeah. you know, I remember I went to a Protestant church for the first time. I was just like, it's it felt like a different religion to me, right? Because <laughs> it was more laid back. We had guitars playing and stuff like that. There were like, you know, there was even like a smoke machine. Like it was, it was. Um, I think human beings are ritualistic animals. And one of the aspects of, of Protestantism is sola scriptura, which is that you're saved by faith alone. It's only by your faith that you are saved. And, and that's something that orthodoxy doesn't necessarily align with. We, we think rituals are very important. It's very important to do, to, to act out what you are saying you believe, right? And I, you know, and also the mystical, the the mystical experience is pretty important too. The mysticism is hugely important. Whereas with Western Christianity, um, I mean, they have depictions of God in orthodoxy. It is completely forbidden to have a depiction of God, right? To have a, to have God as, as an old man with a long white beard. That is not Mm. that, that it, it is wrong to do that. That is not our, our belief so the western christianity is very rational right the the catholic mm. church throughout the throughout the middle ages and the renaissance sought to rationalize the world to to put two and two together and know it equals four because of god and, and try to rationalize it whereas with orthodoxy we were a mystical we're a mystic religion meaning that we aren't necessarily interested in rationalism and the enlightenment where mm. we believe that there are things that we simply cannot know because it's beyond our comprehension mm. and that it would be foolish or even, you know, possibly blasphemous to pretend we know. Mm. And, and, and that's the, the mysticism of it is very important that mm. we are, you know, we don't know what, what's, what's really going on mm. and, and that's okay. Yeah. But yeah, it's, when you talk to Protestant Christians, again, great people, we're not talking about the people or even 
certain short, even certain churches, you know, they're doing the best within the philosophy that they're operating in. But there is a kind of an arrogance or a bit of an intolerance, perhaps, that you might see within evangelical groups of like, like, like they know the truth. And then to some yeah. degree, it's under, to, to some degree, it's understandable, but it's like, you know, they know the truth. You know, Jesus Christ is the way and everybody else is wrong. And there's this, there's this, there's a lot of certainty and a lot of boundary setting and a lot of us, you know, this is us, we're saved, you know, you know, or we're trying to be saved. We're, we're following the right way. We know what we're doing. These other people, they're just experimenting or exploring or these crazy people going on Buddhist meditation retreats or following Hinduism. That's all wrong and completely sinful, right? Yeah, it, it, it lacks the symbolism. Like a great example of that is, and we're both probably too young to remember this, but, you know, there's a massive backlash against Harry Potter. Um, when it came out, a lot of Christian churches were like burning the book and saying it's demonic, it promotes witchcraft. And, you know, again, from our perspective, like actually, if you look at it, like archetypally, Harry Potter is actually a very Christian story, right? Like J.K. Rowling has heavy Christian themes in it. So that symbolism, I think, is sometimes lost in the West. And, you know, we see it happen historically. Like when I was at the monastery, um, they talked about something that we remind ourselves. You're supposed to tell yourself this every day, ideally, which is that I am the chief of all sinners. You say that to yourself every day. I am the chief of all sinners. And what that does is set the bar for you consistently and make you focus not on like the speck in someone else's eye when you have a log in your you know like you need to focus on actualizing yourself which is why one of i i would argue possibly one of the negatives with orthodoxy that some people have noticed is that it's not a very um open faith in terms of the fact that you go to a protestant church they're at the door greeting you hey how are you come on in right are you are you going to come again next time they'll really hassle you with mm -hmm. the orthodox churches they'll almost be like they kind of <laughs> we aren't very welcoming like they make it they make it almost difficult to be part of um mm. because it, it's not going to we don't believe that any church should marry itself to any generation because it'll be widowed in the next. And the other aspect of that is the focus on, on the self. The community is super important. Of course, the Christian community is important, but you're fighting a battle in yourself. And, and so that's why we don't have missionaries. Orthodox don't have, don't do missionary work. Uh, unlike the other churches, because it's just, we don't really proselytize that much. It, it, it's sort of, um, it's a private thing, mm. right? And, and and that's sort of different as well. So, you mm. know, I think one of the great case studies is um, obviously in Canada, we can't stop talking about everything that's, that's, you know, historically has gone on with the indigenous. But while I was at the church, they showed me an icon of, um, saint peter the aloetian so saint peter the aloetian was native american he was a, a, a he's a he's a saint now but he's a, a native american uh, man who converted or a young boy who converted to orthodoxy and um 
we had back then we did do missionary work the russians did and there's a there's an alaskan orthodox community that all converted willingly there weren't residential schools because what what orthodoxy did in north america is that it adapted to the culture there are totem poles for example in alaska that have crosses on them so instead of sort of forcibly converting people we merely articulated the same message of jesus christ through their understanding of spirituality locally but in the case of saint peter the aloysian there were franciscan catholic monks who you know ran into him and said you have to convert to catholicism you have to convert to christianity and he said well i am a christian i'm orthodox and they, that wasn't good enough for them so they 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 flailed him alive basically and killed him um and that's why we but we venerate him as a as a saint right mm. so there's there's a lot of differences there's a lot of significant differences and and again we don't talk about it a lot of people don't know about orthodoxy a lot of people yeah definitely. you know i know a lot of people who found out about it through peterson just because you know a lot peterson has this like massive following among the orthodox community because you know everything he says is very in line with us but a lot of people who who have certain gripes about christianity um don't necessarily look at the denominations and the history and you know yeah. we're a denomination of half, like half a billion people um and we're not as big as the other churches because we didn't proselytize and we didn't do missionary work so right it's um i think it's worth looking into for people and, and i've met a lot of young men in particular um i mean the guy i went to the monastery with um cooper was my godson and he's a few years older than me actually but he was like a new age atheist um and then mm. it was actually jordan peterson that made him convert to orthodoxy and now he's hardcore orthodox mm. wow so you know, but he grew up yeah. Protestant, right? And he grew up Protestant and he thought like, you know, he grew up creationist actually. So like he was being taught that the earth is 4,000 years old, like some crazy specific number. And it seems kind of shocking to some people that like, we don't, I mean, that's another one. We don't even talk about like, how old is the earth? Like, why would you even care? Like, that's not even part <laughs> well, of it. How, seems like how so, could you even have an so, answer to that? yeah how could you even have an answer and and again it's like what what does the answer to that have to do with you achieving theosis Hmm. like that's what it comes down to and um yeah yeah yeah. and can you expand on the point you were making earlier that within the evangelical tradition it's a a deep focus on scripture like scripture has the authority and Mm -hmm. versus you're saying an orthodox it's more the experience of God rather than like understanding God or reading about God. It's more about uh, the direct experience. Is that right? Yeah. Well, so, so here's what it is actually. Basically there's something called sola scriptura in Latin. And that is the basis of the Protestant church. And that sola scriptura means that you are saved by God by faith alone, meaning that it is by your faith, it is by your personal, you know, this is what happens with a lot of people who say they're born again, 
what happens is they 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 get baptized and they say I'm a born again Christian. I I I said I believe in Jesus and now I'm saved and that's it. Mm. And so, so it's just belief. Yes, within the Protestant by... tradition, if you believe, you're saved. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's it. If you yeah. believe, you, if you believe, you're saved. Now, saved, and by saved, that means you're going to heaven. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. Precisely. So, okay. you know, our 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 perception is that just because you say something, mm. it doesn't necessarily mean you like like the perception is you have to act it out in the world. Like you can't, you can't necessarily just say you believe in something because even you don't really know what you believe in. Like I could say, I believe in something. Mm. I could say that I, I really, I really think I need to go on a diet and then I don't do it. Well, it doesn't mean I went on a diet just because I said that I'm going to do it. Mm. Right. Or, or so, if you're like a, or, or if you're the member of the, whatever, if you're a member of the conservative party or the liberal party, but you don't actually participate in anything. Or, or maybe you do superficially participate in it, but you don't really engage with the policies and the ideas and what the party's actually doing. You just, you're just a member, like that kind of idea. Yeah. Like you yeah. say you are, but like, like, what does that even mean? Well, exactly. And, and that's where we think rituals are important, including communion, right? I mean, that's, again, it's a really sort of wacky thing to outsiders that we believe that we're actually consuming the blood and body of, of of our God, basically, right? But those rituals... Isn't, isn't that like a depiction, though? You're saying no depiction, but like de- depiction in the wine and the bread. Would that not count well, as... Yeah. We, but, well, that's a depiction of Christ, but not of the Father. We don't depict the Father. Right, but, but with, at least from my understanding within the Protestant tradition, it's, you know, Jesus had the spirit of God within him. He was God's son. So, so people pray to Jesus because he embodied the energy of God. Right. Yeah. They're, they're one in the same, but if you look at certain depictions within, let's say Catholicism, there will be, there'll be Jesus and then there'll be a father. That's actual, that's actually another depiction of an older man. Mm. And that's, that's something that, that we don't do. Do we do we believe in Jesus that Jesus is our God? Yes, we pray to Jesus. Jesus is our God, um, but but it's a holy Trinity. He he is of the Father. Mm. So so the communion itself, you know, we effectively believe that Jesus is the sacrificial Lamb for humanity, and. We have that, and that's the communion's a very big part of it. Every little thing is a little part. The prayer rope is a big part of it. The cross is a big part of it, right? In many Protestant churches, you don't necessarily see crosses. So the ritual aspects, the baptism, um, you know, even the burial aspect of it, it all has a specific purpose and a specific meaning that has lasted for thousands and thousands of years. And one of the reasons why we feel it has lasted for thousands and thousands of years is because of those hardened rituals that keep it afloat. Mm. So with an orthodoxy, there's less of a focus on your belief though. That like, that is still a prerequisite, right? You still have to believe. Oh yeah, of course you have to believe in it. Uh, but you have to do certain things 
to actualize it. Like again, the, the prayer, um, like it would be similar in, in Hinduism if I were to say, well, you can be saved, you can be complete, you know, you're gonna, you're, you're at the top of the caste or whichever aspect of Hinduism you believe in, but you don't have to meditate ever. You don't have to do the alm. You don't have to do any of that. And, right. you know, we, we still feel they're saved. Um, but our, our, our position is that these rituals exist for a reason. And we think Christ wanted us to have certain rituals. Um, and that these rituals, you know, obviously belief is, is a prerequisite. But you need these rituals to, to proceed forward into that theosis. Mm. So, so people who don't, people who believe, but don't participate in the process of theosis, are they, so they're not saved then? Or, or, or do you just look at it as a big mystery of God decides, we don't know? We, well, obviously we don't know, but our position is that, you know, all, all Christians are saved. Um, we're not exclusionary. So we believe they're saved, but we believe that to achieve theosis, you must be in communion. You must you must perform the rituals to achieve theosis. You can still be saved and not achieve theosis, right? Theosis is just right. the, the the penultimate sort of uh, you know level ten sort of uh, sort of aspect of it. Um, so the ultimate goal should always be theosis, though. So from the Orthodox perspective, all Christians are saved and non-Christians most likely are not saved or you just don't know and you just leave it we, to God. We, we leave it to God. We're that, that's the mysticism of it. Mm. But but somebody who believes in uh, Christianity, believes in the spirit of Jesus Christ, they're, they're definitively saved, whereas somebody who doesn't, they're, they're not definitively saved. Is that right? Well, it goes back to missing the mark, whether you miss the mark or not. If someone is a Protestant and doesn't necessarily practice the rituals within the church, however, they believe in God, which supposedly would mean that they live their life in accordance with those morals, that they don't cheat, they don't kill people, they don't steal, they don't, you know, they don't uh, covet the neighbor's wife, um, whether they like it or not, the irony of it is that that is an act, right? That that it isn't just by because if if it was purely by by faith alone, they just wouldn't. They could do all these terrible things, but then still have faith, right? So every they're clearly all doing rituals. The ritual of of praying because Protestants do do pray. They're all doing rituals by following the scripture and following the commandments and following the law. So they still are doing things in their daily life, even though they don't call them rituals. So to that degree, we believe they're saved. They may not notice that they're doing rituals, but we, we see that as rituals. We see, you know, the person giving the homeless person money. Mm. That's, that's a ritual. That is a, yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that leads to my second question. Then this is kind of a theoretical question and you may not, have a definitive answer but if you were to compare say a protestant christian who attends church on sundays and you know is a, is a normal guy isn't charitable but also isn't 
deeply sinful. He's not killing people or stealing things, but he, he's just, you know, he, let, let's say he's a mechanic and he has kids and he, he, he doesn't devote a lot of time to meditation, prayer, or ritual, but just attends church and he's part of a Protestant Christian uh, organization. And, and that's what he does. Like kind of an average guy who's going through normal issues, but he believes in God and goes to church every Sunday. If you were to compare him to, say, let's say a, a Buddhist or a Hindu person who believes in God, who's meditating for two or three hours a day and vigorously praying and chanting Om and uh, doing Seva, which means doing service for other people. Let's say he's helping out at the soup kitchen every week. Um, from the Orthodox perspective, is it emphatically clear that the former is saved and superior to the latter or is that a complicated question so it's a really good question it's not it's not clear really um well because former is a good guy you're saying but doesn't necessarily volunteer at the soup kitchen doesn't necessarily act it out or um, devote devote any any cont- any time to contemplative exercises or, or or anything more than just you know praying before bed briefly, just praying quickly before dinner or whatever, but not really devoting to kind of a spiritual life. Whereas the in the other case, this guy's waking up early and meditating for two hours and chanting Om. You know, he has much more of a ritual oriented life as opposed to the former, who's just more part of a group and just kind of believes it but not really devoting his full energy and life to that cause. I think, I think the former certainly saved. Um, are they, are they going to be achieving theosis? I, I don't know. I mean, this is pure. I can't speak for what's in the heart of like, it's, it's all, it's already wrong theoretically for me to speak in what someone, what's going on in someone's heart and soul, just as an Orthodox person, you're not supposed to, but this is hypothetical. So I, I think they're saved. I, I don't think they're they're particularly spiritually enlightened. With the latter, they're incredibly spiritually enlightened. They're arguably um, they're arguably venerating the Holy Spirit, but maybe don't have aspects of the Father and the Son. Um, are they saved? I don't know. But but what your question is basically is who is higher up on the rung? Um, and again, that I don't know because your titles don't necessarily mean, titles don't mean anything if you don't act them out. Um, Mm. which is not the Protestant belief, right? It's belief is central. Belief is, it's all you need is is your faith. Right. Um, but that's, Again, they, they still have to, even in their case, again, if you, if you go to a soup kitchen, that is acting it out, right? They may feel that it's not acting out, that they're just a good person, but we feel that everything you do in your life is acting out a belief system that you, you, and this goes back to the whole Jordan Peterson thing where like people, people think he's always dodging the question when, when he says, I act as if God exists. Um, when he's not, that, that's, that's an orthodox understanding mm. of, of God is that to say, yeah, I believe God exists. What's well, like, well, 
you believe the Big Mac is the best hamburger ever made. I mean, to say you believe something, it doesn't just because you say it doesn't mean you're acting it out. Whereas really what you unconsciously act out in the world is more so mm. indicative of what you actually believe. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a tough one. I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's a really uh, interesting question from that perspective. And, and you made a really interesting point. Like you said this earlier as well, that other religions may have the Holy spirit, but may not have the father and the son. I mean, the, the way I would look at it um, would be, and I have my own universal perspective, but, but even from Orthodox perspective, would it not make more sense that a Hindu has the father element in that, that, you know, they have God, that's the creator, that, that is the universe in the Hindu perspective, but, but they have that God element, but they don't have Jesus or they don't have the Holy Spirit. But you're saying they have the Holy Spirit, but not the Father and the Son? I guess it depends on which one. I was thinking more so with Buddhism. But I think I, I would say the Holy Spirit is the one that is the most transcendent, as far as I could tell. Because, I mean, I should ask you, in Hinduism, the idea is that God is the universe? Yeah. Yeah, God is the universe. He is the he's he's essentially you might liken him to oxygen or atoms. He is the foundation of the universe. He he's the unitary substance of the universe. He's in he's within everybody, within all creatures, within all of nature. This is just one big manifestation of God. And in some sense, there's fundamentally nothing other than God, which gets complicated. He, not to say that evil things are in line with what God wants, but that, you know, the fundamentally we are all, we, we are all God. We're all little pieces that fill the puzzle, but, but most of us never recognize that. And recognizing that similar to theosis requires a lot of contemplative ritual, meditation, devotion, and practice to, to ultimately realize what you truly are. That's the, the idea of the true self within Hinduism. Yeah. So all that's very similar. The one thing that I would say is different is, is the idea that God is the universe in our, in our. I've lost you there. We feel that in our position. Sorry. 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 I, I just lost you when you started talking about the difference. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So the difference is that in our position, God is not the universe. God created the universe. So in that sense, God is not, God does not exist in, in our universe. We don't, we don't believe that. So that's why, you know, there's always the whole thing of like, what does God look like? And this and that, well, our perspective is there is no look like that. This is why we don't have depictions of God because God cannot be conceptualized because he's outside of yeah. time, space and matter. Right. So, so you're saying God doesn't exist at all in the universe? We God exists. He created the universe. But he doesn't so manifest in the universe. The Holy Spirit manifests in the universe. Right. And that is part of God, right? Without getting too granular. Yes, he does he does manifest in the universe. But this is why this is why we're trinitarian that we believe that there is that there is a force 
that created the universe and that force existed from outside of the universe. So, so that's why, like, funnily enough, you can actually say God doesn't exist and you're not technically blaspheming. Like your, your Jonathan Pasho talks about this. It's like to exist means to be part of this universe. And, and that part of mm-hmm. God is and Holy spirit is the, the sun obviously was, came down to this universe, but so that, that's, that's one difference, but yeah, I mean, in, in terms of saying, where does the, certainly the sun seems to only, you know, being Christian or Abrahamic faith. I mean, even Islam has um, scripture on Christ, right? So the Abrahamic faith, um, faith systems have the son, they have the father, they have the, 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 the Holy Spirit to some degree. Um, they just often disagree on who the son may be, right? The Judaism still believes there is supposed to be a Messiah, but that Messiah has not manifested himself yet. Mm. Um, so, it, you know, our again, our position is that it, it's transcendent, and it's wrong to say that, you know, a, a tribesman in Papua New Guinea who's never seen the world outside of their island mm. is just inherently damned um, mm. because they so happen to not have encountered, you know, Christianity. Yeah, like it, yeah. It, it's just not that's that's not our perspective. It, it's more so it's more so the fact that it goes back to the whole priest thing being held up to a higher standard. It's back to the fact that if right. that tri- tribesman in Papua New Guinea lives a life that is actually in line with our values, despite not even knowing them scripturally. That, in a sense, or getting it from almost, a different source, in, in the case yeah. of a Hindu or a Buddhist, yeah. I'd say. But but there's beauty to that because that's 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 incredible. The the mm. idea that you know, our we believe our inherent human nature is just terrible, right? That we're just this, we're these animals that are petty and vain and murderous. And we have all these terrible tendencies and to see that it's not, it's not just that you're reading words and now, you know, these are the rules, but rather that these laws do exist in the universe that we feel for each other, that we feel that it's wrong to hurt each other, that it's wrong to kill, that it's wrong to steal, that something in us just inherently feels wrong about it. Um, that that is that is god speaking to us um and of course we believe the other side too we believe in demonic forces we believe you know and that was the the monks at the island felt that i was being plagued by that that i was being that i was Mm -hmm. wrestling with demonic with demonic forces um so we believe in the flip side as well Mm. this is a really interesting conversation and i'm learning a lot but i do have to go here uh, briefly now for dinner. Um, likewise, is, is it likewise. possible? Is it possible to continue this conversation like tomorrow or another day? Continue uh, this, com- coming back from retreat and what your the the rest of your experience and how you potentially are integrating it. Uh, you know, I I, I want to keep the conversation going, but I do have to go here. 
Absolutely. Don't know about tomorrow, but we can absolutely continue it at some point this yeah. next week. Yeah, yeah, sure. All right. uh, is Saturday possible? Yep, Saturday is absolutely or, or no, possible. No, sorry, Saturday I'm talking to my atheist friend. Who, <laughs> my, my atheist friend, Alex, uh, Alice Gretchkin, who left evangelical Christianity and says that she was traumatized by it pretty heavily. Ah, interesting. And she, and she, and she believes that... Um, forced her to loathe herself to view her view herself as such a deep sinner uh, such a deep and profound sinner that she didn't have room for self-love in herself and being content with who she is and that um, took a big toll on her so she's going to come on and talk about that experience we'll see if you can sell her on some eastern spirituality there's a lot of (laughs) self-love in eastern spirituality yeah yeah well she does a lot of meditation she's done a lot of psychedelics um, she's very open-minded and uh, gravitates towards certain secular Buddhist ideas. But uh, she, yeah, she's an interesting person, and I want to hear her perspective as well. Interesting. Well, I look forward to hearing it, and then we can absolutely chat again. We have we have a lot more in common than I thought, actually. Um, so yeah, this is great. Yeah, yeah, I didn't I didn't expect that, and especially just the uh the like like you were saying taking a break from politics but not you know totally abandoning politics and becoming super cynical or too self-obsessed in any way but taking a healthy pause or creating more of a healthy distance from politics and from writing that, that's been my journey over the past few months and it's you know the certain readers uh certain friends people associated with me have been questioning um, whether or not what I'm doing is healthy and people in my family are kind of worried or concerned about um, where I'm going with this or if I'm just becoming some uh, monk who's renouncing the world or just being lazy <laughs> or, or not uh, investing as much into to work and into writing projects. You know, that's definitely a, a immigrant uh, concern for sure of, Wow, Rav's doing drugs, and now he's doing all this meditation. And like, what's what's going on here? Why is he, why, why is why is he not writing about politics every week? What what happened to him? Is he degrading, or, or what is it? So that's that's an ongoing kind of struggle in many ways, and something that wow. I'm thinking a lot about. As uh, as the son of a of immigrant parents, especially my immigrant mother, I know exactly how that is. It's uh, it's. Uh... It's a, it's a typical mentality, but it comes from love and, yeah. uh, and a concern for a better, for a better life. Right. So. And immigrants from where? Well, uh, we're Greek. Oh yeah. Yeah. You said, yeah. And, and I assume in your case as well, the, because of the immigration process, there's just not a lot of focus on mental health and detoxing. No, not and, at all. And, and I mean, you, I mean, you're Greek, you're Orthodox family. So I assume you have a strong spiritual component. But... There's a, definitely a strong spiritual component. But if, if, uh, if you said, oh, you know, I think I have agoraphobia or something, that would be uh, very quickly dismissed uh, in, in my family. It's just not, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We were so poor that, same here. We just needed to get freaking food on the table. We didn't have time to to know all these nuances of how we're feeling and all those sorts of things. We just got to get food on the table. You don't even have time to think about exactly. That. Yeah, 
Exactly. Yeah, well, yeah, well, well there, why well, I just mentioned that we're we're more alike than different on that as well with the with yeah. the immigrant experience. Yeah, there's unfortunately not a lot of time to brood or sit with your feelings, right? So all those things get pushed under the rug. But yeah. uh, you know, yeah, in my case, you know, as my family's gotten more and more prosperous, more and more wealthy now, now now there's more room to look at certain intergenerational traumas and, and and there's a natural kind of resistance to that too of like you know you know why should i go to therapy why should i spend so much time like journaling or um seeing a counselor there's just a natural disinclination for doing that but when you can you definitely you definitely should and that's hopefully as as open-minded uh sons of, of immigrants we can kind of bring those values and those ideas to, to our parents so that they can also learn something from us and and uh, heal certain things that they haven't just been attending to oh yeah there's a lot of uh, a lot of bottling things up absolutely so exactly I, I i couldn't agree more but this was great thank you for having me on rev yeah yeah i appreciate it i want to learn more about your experience and uh it it uh, like we already said, it, it fully aligns with what I'm doing right now in many ways. N- not, not obviously traditionally aligning as we're in different faiths or exploring different faiths in my case, but uh, there's a lot of, of fundamental parallels that I think in some ways are just more more profound or more uh, interesting than some of the, the differences that, that can seem so profound, but they often obscure the the underlying oneness of the universe. That's kind of the Hindu idea, right? So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, look forward to uh, talking to you either later this week or uh, next week. Let's do it. Have a good night. All right. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye.